all these books that are telling American history from the side of the people who were harmed by the past are getting pulled from the classrooms because they're saying they make white kids feel bad. So welcome back, everyone, to Stuck with Damon Young, the show where we are banned in 17 states. I mean, not not really. (laughs) But a nigga can dream, right? But yeah, you know, although the South gets most of the attention for this, school districts all over the country have been subject to folks getting challenged and banned by parents and administrators who believe the content is too black or too Muslim or too queer or too anything other than cishet, Christian, and white. And to talk about some of the historical context of book banning and what we could do to fight this, I'm joined today by living icon Jacqueline Woodson. And then the homie Hillary Crosley Coker comes through to talk about the end of Jezebel, her town working there, and what, if anything, exists now to replace the voicey, fearless, messy, and radical content from blogs like Jezebel and Gawker. All right, y'all. Let's get it. Jacqueline Woodson is a MacArthur genius and author of 39 books, including her latest, Remember Us, which is available in stores right now. Jackie, what's good? Oh, man, seeing you is good. That's for sure. And also before we uh, got on, one of our producers, Ryan, was talking about how great your background is and how just unique it is and how curated and the placement is and you know i shared that you know it's a flex actually because all of those plaques <laughs> all of those awards all those medals those have your name on them <laughs> presuming those aren't just random <laughs> it's crazy but there's a method to you know the curation there where you actually were saying that you did not intend to flex mm-hmm. in this manner This is my pre-pandemic, pre-Zoom wall. And my whole thing for years and years was that I was going to have my desk. I was going to have all the awards and stuff behind me. It has nothing to do with what I'm currently working on, what I'm trying to do. So I wouldn't look at it. I'm looking at this blank wall. It just has an Aya Brown drawing on it. And I love it. I love just looking at blankness. But now this is the backdrop in my Zoom because we become this Zoom culture is is bananas. Every time I look up, I'm like, oh, no, there goes my past. But I was asking you about your color curator. Like, are your books curated by color? Because there's like an ombre going on too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a color coordination thing happening there where it's just, it is what it is. That's just how the books are curated on this bookshelf. There's a couple other ones in the house, but yeah. For this one. How do you find what you're looking for? Do you remember uh, the color of spines? Well, the thing is, there aren't a lot of books here. Mm-hmm. There's maybe, like on this wall right here, maybe 150, mm-hmm. 200. And so those are mostly books that I've read recently. Oh, wow. Um, right. Not older books, but books that, you know, and, and by recently, I mean like in the last four or five years. Okay. Right. And so I'm not rereading those. As immediately as some of the other ones that are a bit older and that I come back to more often. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's a good question, though, because you're, you're the first person to ask me that one. It's like, OK, how do you find <laughs> what you're looking for? Mm-hmm. Right. Because there's so many different ways to curate in a book collection. You could do color coded. You could do just random. Right. It could be an alphabetical and chronological order also. 
It's true. It's true. Mm-hmm. By titles or by author name. Mm-hmm. I do, you know, the author's last name. Okay. It's my way of doing it. So you're like a bookstore, basically. Yeah. I'm like a alphabetized yeah. to the bone bookstore. So you're on tour, and this is book number... 39, 40, I'm not sure. Oh, my God. 39. I stopped counting. I've written a lot of books. You have written a lot of books. <laughs> right. A lot of great books. Thanks, Damon. Can you just tell us a bit about, I guess, the latest? So this is a book called Remember Us, and it takes place in the Bushwick section of Brooklyn in the 70s, and which is where I grew mm-hmm. up. Um, and it's about the fires that were happening in the city, in that part of the city during that time, these fires were happening in Bushwick and in the Bronx. And sometimes they were electrical. A lot of times they were the result of landlords setting their buildings on fire to get the insurance money. And Mm -hmm. it revolves around a girl, Sage, who's 12, who's a basketball dynamo and um, her bearing witness to these fires. And so it's trying to talk about a lot of stuff, but that's the foundation. Yeah. I mean, you know, just typical light fear. (laughs) Just lightness. (laughs) <laughs> through and through, yeah. right? Just a Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and so how's the tour been so far? It's been interesting. I've been to a lot of cities. I mean, you know how this goes, but mm-hmm. I think we're still trying to figure out how to do it post-pandemic, right? People are starting to come out again. Publishers are trying to figure out how to get them into spaces. It's, it's been interesting. There were a lot of people on tour. Like I kept missing Roxanne Gay because she's on tour with Opinions. And then Rachel Eliza Griffiths is on tour with Promise. So all these people who we revolve around the same communities. We're out in the world trying to amplify our voices. And and it's a different time. It's a book tour post-pandemic. This was my first time going out in it. So I am not as vigilant. Mm-hmm. I guess in the last maybe three or four months, my vigilance level has reduced. And I was hyper. I still mask in airports, airplanes, elevators, uh, <laughs> Ubers. With good reason. But I am doing public events. Right. I just did a thing with Isaac Fitzgerald last week. He came to Pittsburgh. He's on his paperback tour. and He was at Whitewell mm-hmm. Bookstore here in the city. And I did not mask up. And you were in conversation with him? Yeah, I was in conversation with him. And your point about just the anxiety that people have, where I think that people are definitely itching to return to some sense of normalcy. And it's like, well, how do you determine what is the right thing to do? Mm-hmm. Right. How do you determine, like, am I being hypervigilant? Am I overcorrecting? Or am I like under vigilant? Am I like trying to, I don't know, return to a normalcy that isn't actually there right now? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's for real. It is. I, I feel like there is this level of denial to it. I mean, I was at a party last night and um, there were a lot of us there and it was a food party. I don't know if you know Minjin Lee, but she wrote Pachinko and she threw these hella dinner parties. <laughs> and so we're all there. We're sharing food. We're in the space together. And I think there's just a level of we want to feel hopeful. We want to feel like we can do some of the stuff that mm. we love doing before. And because now people are living with COVID rather than dying with it for the most part. I think there is this way. I think about it like the post-AIDS period where people are still 
of course, having safe sex, but they weren't terrified that they were going to die because there was a way to live with that chronic illness. And I think in the same way with COVID, yeah, we might get sick, we might lose a day or two, but at the same time, we want to live. <laughs> yeah. Not only in our bodies, but like in our communities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's such a good point you bring up about just, yeah, I think my vigilance is conditional also. Like when I'm in an unfamiliar space, I am more an unfamiliar space that is packed yeah. and that is closed or whatever. I'm more likely to mask up. But, you know, for instance, I'm going to be in Harlem for the Fet. Oh, yes. At the beginning of the month, I'm coming in. Yay! I'm probably not going to mask. Yeah, no. And, and again, I won't be around people I know. going to be having a great time. But there's no reason for me to be any less vigilant there than I would be like in some unfamiliar space. But again, I, I feel like there's like this psychosomatic thing happening where, you know what? I know these niggas <laughs> because I know them. That gives me another layer <laughs> of, um, of protection and um, equating it to the AIDS scare, I think works. And I'm even just thinking about my own background, my own education, my own upbringing. I came of age in the eighties, nineties, mm-hmm. right? That's when I was a you know preteen teen. And so you were taught to be terrified of four things. Yeah. Quicksand. <laughs> right. <laughs> You're taught to be terrified of quicksand. Um, drugs. All the, you know, say no to drugs, all the dare, all the this is your brain on drugs, those commercials. Like if you took drugs, you were gonna die. Like that that was it. And AIDS. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Particularly in the nineties. Like you were terrified. I'm in middle school, high school, and this was just drilled into us like if you have sex you might die mm-hmm. right and and the thing is that hysteria existed for a good reason yeah right because it was killing uh, lots of people yeah right but i think the hysteria was an overcorrection mm-hmm. to what was happening and, it, and it's funny this is probably the most awkward segue i've ever made before in this podcast but you know speaking of hysterias <laughs> right we're in an age right now where there is a lot of hysteria about books mm-hmm. and about education and about books from people of color or books from queer people or books from people who are not cis het white men, mm-hmm. essentially. And so what has your experience been with the book banning that's happening and that's becoming just more and more pervasive throughout the country? The struggle is real. I think that It's finally getting amplified as what it is, which is an erasure of history. Mm -hmm. And I think that I'm starting to see some pushback. What people were thinking and saying before was that this was about first pornography, right? That was, quote unquote, the books that we were trying to indoctrinate kids, quote unquote. But now people are realizing it's books like, Brown Girl Dreaming and the story of Ruby Bridges and the story of Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement, all these books that are telling American history from the side of the people who were harmed by the past are getting pulled from the classrooms because they're saying they make white kids feel bad. And that the fact that what is happening is books by queer people, books by people of the global majority are suddenly 
being not only banned, but the bans being legislated so that teachers and librarians can get fired for having a book in the classroom. I mean, Red at the Bone is banned because it talks about the Tulsa race massacre. And that was a time where white people were not behaving in a good light, right? So I think that this is, is such a deeply dangerous time for us and for our young people, because the idea of walking into a classroom and not seeing any reflection of yourself in the literature is a really dangerous place to be, to have this sense that you're not legitimate in the bigger world. And and writers like myself and Virginia Hamilton and Walter D. Myers, and then of course, Jason Reynolds and Kwame Alexander and Angie Thomas, all these writers who came along to let kids see themselves in the narrative mm-hmm. and provide these narratives where they had, as Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop talks about, mirrors and windows, mirrors that show reflections of themselves and windows into other worlds. The fact that these books are being pulled from school libraries and sometimes even public libraries um, is a really heartbreaking thing for me because I love young people. Also, it's just going to make people even less right because they have no sense of history. <laughs> you know, obviously I try not to be a, a victim of the president, mm-hmm. right? And recognize that, you know what, I'm 44, which, you know, I've been around for a bit, but I haven't been around, you know, f- forever, right? And so it might seem like to me that this period is unique in terms of the stereo being unique, the political push to bad books, to censor, to constrict, to restrict is somewhat new. But again, I wasn't a working adult during 9-11. I was an adult, but I wasn't like an adult who was in the world, right? During 9-11, I was an adult in the 80s or in the 90s. And so I'm going to ask you, like, is it right to say that this period is unique or is this just like another version of things that you've witnessed happening in the last, you know, 20, 25 years? It's a good question. It's not unique in the history of the world, right? Um, We have seen book bannings. We have seen the history where people are exiled, imprisoned, killed for what they've written or what they're reading, right? That idea of having to hide a narrative just shows us, of course, how powerful books are. But it is unique in the history of the 20th century, And of course, the 21st century, because the 21st century is so young, in that in the past, it hasn't been legislated. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we had school boards, we had parents coming in, stealing books out of libraries because they didn't want their kids to read them, or getting on school boards. When we look at the rainbow curriculum of the 90s, where it was a real push to keep books that dealt with queer themes out of schools, right? So uh, I remember Heather Had Two Mommies was one of the big books that people were like, this is a book that's trying to indoctrinate kids. And so parents got on school boards to exercise that power. And um, in this period, we started the school boards. And this is, again, why voting is so important, right? You vote at all these different levels. So school boards, and then they became parts of districts, and then they became parts of city councils. And and it, it just kind of moved up the ladder until we get to this point of people saying, it's against the law if you live in Florida to have these books in your classroom. And if you're a teacher bringing those books into the classroom, you will be fired. And if you're a librarian who has these books on your shelves, you will be fired. And that's something I haven't lived through before. And I've been here for a long time. <laughs> 
And I think, you know, one part about it that we have to be careful about, and I'm speaking to myself too, is that I think there's a presumption that this sort of thing is happening in certain parts of the country or it's concentrated mm-hmm. in certain parts of the country, particularly in the South, maybe in the Southwest. But there's shit happening in Western Pennsylvania right now. Pine Richland is a school district in this county where they're having like a book ban controversy right now because of school board, because of parents and people who are wanting to remove books from classrooms. And again, this is 10 minutes outside of Pittsburgh, right? And so this thing, you know, and again, it's just a mistake to assume, to presume that this thing is limited to like Florida or Texas, Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, whatever, because it is Mm -hmm, pervasive. mm -hmm. It is spreading. It is everywhere right now too. So true. I, I wanted to ask you too, you know, like as someone who has had books banned, right? <laughs> have you ever felt any like radical or like subversive, like, like, whole shit? You know what I mean? My, my book is so explosive. <laughs> my book is so radical, so black, so queer. It's so explosive. They can't even put it in school. You know, a kid going to pick this book up and set on fire. have you ever i'm I'm not saying that this is your prevailing (laughs) thought about having your books banned but have you ever felt any of that you know that's so funny the history of children's writing is a history of people being somewhat subversive right Mm -hmm. you're going to underneath the telling of the story there's a deep moral code, right? Mm-hmm. And the way that, a deep way that you believe the world should be. And you're not going to stand on a soapbox and say, this is how the world should be, but you're going to write a book called Each Kindness about a girl who isn't kind and lives to regret it, right? And that's going to show a young person the impact of their unkindness not only on the greater good in the bigger world, but on their own body. And that kid is going to think, well, when have I been unkind? And so this is all happening on the page of a book. Mm -hmm. And I know I'm doing that. I know I'm talking about when I wrote Brown Girl Dreaming, I knew I was saying, I have a right to be seen in this world, and so do you. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to say that, but I'm going to write it so that you feel that. Mm -hmm. And I also don't think that I'm dropping some kind of bomb, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm not saying anything that hasn't been said before. Or, But what I, I feel like I'm doing is having this conversation with young people to show them their power. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that this is what adults tend to be scared of, right? If a white kid reads a book about a Black kid who's had some kind of life that that white kid could never imagine, that white kid's going to go, I want to know that black kid. I want to have a conversation with them. I you know, I want to see that world. I want to listen to that music. I want to learn that dance. And that conversation, I think, to uh, in this country where people are growing more and more separate is threatening yeah. because they also know how much power young people have. I mean, we see them. We see them walking out of schools. We see them, you know, shutting it down. We see them like having the conversations that are trying to change this moment and in climate change and all of that stuff. And this is why they're going for books in schools. So I love that my books are out there. I love when kids read them and get them. But I'm still surprised when a book like Each Kindness is banned or challenged. Because I'm like, like really? But that book's about kindness. <laughs> yeah. Like at the end of the day. <laughs> so I have a lot of thoughts going through my mind <laughs> all at once. Thank you for sharing that. 
So I have a residency at Pitt, University of Pittsburgh this year. Nice. Congrats. Thank you. And part of residency, I did a workshop last week. I'm doing two workshops in the, uh, in the spring. And the first workshop I did was on humor writing, mm. right? It was an hour long, really interactive, you know, just try to make it really fun for the students and community members who attended. And someone during the end where I had just people ask me questions, you know, one of the students asked about like, well, what all of this happening, book banning, book burning, book whatever, you know, happening um, in the country. And then also you have different publications that are shutting down, that are closing down. And it's like, well, what is it? You know, if I'm like a, I'm 21 years old and I want to be a writer, like, what do you suggest that I do? Do you have any hope for my career going forward? You know, as someone who is interested in being a part of this world, who who needs to write, but is seeing all of these different obstacles in the way to prevent me from doing that. And so I know that you, you know, you have a residency, right? You know, and and I guess I'm just curious, like, what can we do that's a specific question about like authors you know people who have some status but then also like people who are just listening to this podcast mm-hmm. right so maybe two separate answers like what can we do to help fight this mm-hmm. so the first part i'll take is in terms of the obstacles there are always obstacles, right? There's always something standing in the way. If it's not your parents saying, oh, writing's a good hobby, but what are you going to do to earn a living <laughs> and get out of my house? And when I was coming of age as a writer in the 90s, it was this moment where the bodega doors opened for like a second and they let a few writers of color through, mm-hmm. right? But especially in the world of adult writing, aside from like Terry McMillan and the goats of Toni Morrison and James Baldwin and those guys who had written that it was a white boy world, right? And for me, that wasn't going to stop me. So the question is, how do you not let it stop you, right? And I think people have their eyes so much on the mainstream publishing prize. And if that model is not working for us, then what do we do? So I think, especially as a folks of the global majority, we've always had to think outside and around these boxes that folks have attempted to put us in and there's so many more ways of getting your work out. And I think you can't be afraid of struggle, right? I mean, you know it, Damon. I know it. it's like it wasn't like we woke up and we were getting paid for our writing. Mm-hmm. We had all these other hustles going on so that we could write. And I do think if writing is the thing you want to do, what is all the stuff you're going to do? I worked jobs where I'd work four to 12, come home and write from 12 to three, sleep, you know, from three to nine, get up and start writing again. Mm-hmm. In terms of what we can do as people out there, I mean, you're doing it. You're teaching writing. Like, that's all you can do is you can give a person the tools I created, Baldwin for the Arts, to give people the space Mm -hmm. to write. And, like, when you have the tools and when you have the space, then the only other thing you need is the fortitude to get it done. And no one, as you know, no one holds your hand through writing, right? Like that's the thing that you have to do on your own and believe in it enough to get it done. So, and I think it's hard. I think that's one of the hardest things is the faith you have to have to create work, Mm -hmm. right? Like, especially out of nothing. I remember writing my first book and being like, I've never done this before. I don't know how to do this. How do I learn how to do this? But I knew I'd been reading all my life. And that's all I needed to know was that in reading, I was already learning. I was already being given the tools by the writers who came before me. Mm -hmm. 
in the process of writing, it's always terrifying in a way because you have this blank canvas and you're like, okay, I'm going to create something out of this. I'm going to try to make sense of what's in my head. Mm-hmm. And like all this shit circling around in my head. I have an idea. I think I have an idea and I need to transfer it on the page and, and make it like legible and readable and, and it makes sense and also representative what's actually what's in my head. And then sometimes the thing that ends up on a page is different than what you thought yes. was going yes. to what's going to end up on a page. And just like, oh, I, I guess I got to deal with this. So true. And so, yeah. And even as you're getting better, like you could recognize like, oh, I'm getting better at this. It's still like terrifying. It's like, NBA players still get butterflies and get nauseous before games sometimes. And it doesn't mean that they're, they haven't put in the work. It doesn't mean that they're not great at what they do, but it's still, it's like, man, I'm, game's about to start, you know. It's true. And it's also, that's their first time playing that game, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You know, they've never played that particular game in that particular space at that particular time before. Like they've played against that team before. They've played in that stadium before. They wore those shoes before. They took that jump shot before. But they have never had that moment that they're living in now. And I feel like that's the same thing with writing, right? Like I've written all these books, but I've never written this book I'm writing now. So, right, I knew how to write those books (laughs) behind me, but I don't know how to write this book in front of me. And so that never, never goes away. Mm -hmm. And so Baldwin for the Arts, can you tell us a bit about this residency and the genesis of it and what you intend to do with it? So it's fire. I'm proud of my board. I'm proud of myself. I'm proud of Sweden because I got a big grant from Sweden back in 2018. I got a call and they're like, you know, this is Sweden calling. And I was like, yo, why are you calling me at five in the morning? But <laughs> this is the whole country. It's the whole country yeah. on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> like this is all of Sweden <laughs> calling. Everybody. But, but it was wild because it was the Astrid Lindgren Memorial Award and it was given by the Swedish government, basically, and it was $625,000. And so they're like, basically, come to Sweden, get this money and go do whatever you want. And I I was blown away because when I got to Stockholm, like there were these huge flags of my face hanging from all the lampposts in the city. I mean, it's bananas in this wonderful way. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Yeah, they because Astrid Lindgren, who wrote Pippi Longstocking, like she is literally... Her face is on their currency. Hmm. That's how seriously they take writers, you know? Can you imagine that happening here? But, um, and so the money came out of the blue. And for I had gone to residencies like McDowell, to Hedgebrook, to all these places. And I loved Hedgebrook. I loved McDowell. And a lot of times I was one of very few writers of color in the space, one of very few creatives in the space. And I had said, well, wouldn't it be amazing to have a space where you don't have to explain, where you can just go be who you are, be around your people and and do your work. So I took the money and bought land and created Baldwin for the Arts, which is a residency for visual artists, composers and um, and writers of the global majority. And so you've been in existence. We've had, I think, about 70 artists come through so far. And, you know, we pay for everything. We pay for their transportation. We pay for their food. And we just give them a space in the country to create. And it's been amazing. I mean, people have created amazing stuff. It's been life-changing for people who've never done a residence before because you have to face yourself, right? You get there and someone said, I see you. I see your work. I see what you're trying to do. Now go do it. And they're like, oh, shit. (laughs) back to the obstacles. It's like, I have no obstacles. I have this time. I have this space. I have this beauty. I got food in the fridge. I'm here. So now what? And it's great. It's challenging. And people do the work. Oh, wow. Okay. So the Swedish money was completely out of the blue. 
And then I got the MacArthur. And when I got the MacArthur, I was like, ooh, now I got more money for Baldwin. And so then we put that in. And then finally my accountant's like, yo, you got to stop doing this. Like, we got to find another way <laughs> to do this. So, and plus my kids. Well, my kids are like, mommy, what you doing with our inheritance? I'm like, it ain't your inheritance. Like, <laughs> this is what the ancestors brought us here to do, to make spaces for, you know, the people coming. So they're like, we the people coming. I'm like, nah, not so much. <laughs> like, you the people here. So, speaking of which, when I told my son I was talking to you, he was like, oh, shoot, really? So he is such a huge fan. I mean, I'm a fan, but he's like a super fan. I have a good friend that when I shared that, I was going to have you on the podcast. They are currently overseas working right now. They were like, I will fly to Pittsburgh <laughs> and come to your house just to be on the other side of a Zoom with, with Jacqueline Woodson. And they were serious. Like, I will catch a plane <laughs> From Sierra Leone and come to Pittsburgh, right? Oh man, <laughs> <laughs> she can totally zoom me anytime. So, question also. So, for those of us who do not have Sweden on the phone, <laughs> right? Who do not have Sweden uh, calling, hitting us up, texting us. So, for someone like me, yes, I'm teaching writing. That's one thing, and I'm I'm continuing to work, and I have this podcast where I I try to get as many writers on as possible. One because I just I just love talk to y'all and the being community with, with y'all and you know it, it replicates something that we haven't really been able to do because of the lockdown and pandemic but also i just think that writers if you're good at writing you have to be conscientious you have to be self-aware or at least working towards self-awareness mm -hmm. you know about like your place in the world and how things work and so it's just always fascinating to me to talk to other writers just to see how their brains work about you know things like this right but i digress like what do you suggest that I do to fight this shit that is happening right now? You know, Damon, it's such a good question. And it's one that I ask myself every day, like, am I doing enough to create the change in the world that's going to make the world just a little bit easier for the people coming? Because what's happening in the world now is making it much harder for them, right? But I, I think that... You're doing it. I mean, just the fact I didn't have a podcast. I didn't have writers' voices in my ear. I didn't meet writers. Like, I didn't have author visits. Like, I didn't have social media where I could go see what a writer's day looked like. Like, you know, I know it's not the truth of the day, but, you know, the day that they're trying to show us on social media. And I think that just first and foremost acknowledge that the work we're doing is valid, right? And is important to that young Damon Young or Jacqueline Woodson who's like, I want to do this. And acknowledge that, you know, coming from, for me, like coming from, I know you came from more working class, but I came from working class poor background, right? And being able to know that this is possibility and that I feel like young people have so many more tools for telling their stories than we did. Mm -hmm. And support, support, support. People DM me all the time asking questions. People, you know, get on my website and ask questions. And even just the sharing of information. One thing we have in the children's book world is we have a revival that Kwame Alexander started putting together where we just have this huge Zoom and get on and people ask about contracts. They ask about speaking engagements. They ask about that. And really, back in the day, what people had was they had church, right, to go there and disseminate this information. And because there's so much noise in so many places, I think it's important that we use social media, but we also have these small gatherings. And also these gatherings 
that not a lot of people know about so that we can be more mm-hmm. kind of targeted and concentrated about the information. But it all comes back to the same narrative of community, right? Like, what are we doing inside our communities and how is our community supporting us? Because, uh, you know, you and I know, right, given the work we do, we could die trying with all the work that people may ask us to do. I have a shirt that says, I can't, sorry. Because I do also think being able to have (laughs) the ability to say no is important because we do get asked a lot. Jacqueline Woodson, thank you so much for coming through. (laughs) Today. Oh, man. I love talking to you. I love your podcast. I love your books. I, you know, you're just a hero to me. So thanks for having me. You know, it is an honor and a pleasure for you to be able to be here with us today. And also, you know, are you going to the FET? Are you going to be there? <laughs> Bruh, I started that FET. I know you started it. Like, you know, I'm going to be there. I'm so excited you're going to be there. <laughs> You'd be in Sweden, you'd be on the moon, Wakanda, <laughs> you know, wherever. You'd be torn doing your thing. So I don't I don't know. Oh, man. I'm just making sure. I'm so excited you're coming through. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. I will be there. It's going to be fire. And this is the 10th anniversary. And, you know, we have a cap. So you already registered, right? No, I didn't. I didn't register. Uh, I guess I'll do that today. <laughs> We'll make it happen for you. I'll make sure. You, I'll, I'll, I'll do it for you the minute I get off of this. Okay. But um, I am psyched to see you there. And I'm, I'm psyched. And I mean, that's another way of having community, right? That fat. Like, we can have one of those in every state because mm-hmm. people in publishing and people who are writing and trying to do this work exist in all 50 states. It's not just New York, but, but we'll always be the original. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you for for coming through, and um, I'll see you soon. Bye. Up next, Hillary Crosley Coker, just to talk about the, the end of Jezebel and what comes next. But first, Damon Hates. Yeah, so although we teased this with Damon Hates, I think I'm going to bear a bit and talk about something that I appreciate, especially since, you know, we're about to uh, come up on Thanksgiving and it's the the day we're supposed to be thankful for for things or whatever. And so I just want to say that I am really thankful for the production crew of this podcast because podcasting is not necessarily a natural thing for me. I am a person who, you know, I'm an INTJ and introvert in a Capricorn, which means I don't like to talk to no one ever about anything. It's like a nexus of all the people who don't like to say shit to no one. Right. And so this is just not a natural thing for me. I'm a writer. I like being able to have the perfect word, the perfect cadence, the perfect rhythm. You know, and even if I don't have the perfect word, perfect cadence, perfect rhythm, I like the journey, defining it. Whereas when you're talking out loud on the podcast, of course, things are edited. Of course, things are sometimes scripted. But there's just less control, you know, and less. And and for me, there's less chance for like the perfect thing to come up. And I have to be okay with, you know what, this might not be the perfect way to respond. This might not be the perfect way to ask this question, but it's okay enough. Right. And so in order for someone like me to to be competent at that, I'm not even going to say good, but just to be competent, you need a good team. And so I have been fortunate enough 
in the two seasons of Stuck with Demi Young to have a very, very talented, very, very conscientious, very, very hardworking team. That makes me sound good. And I know that's hard. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I know I'm not the easiest person to work with all the time. I have my issues. You know, um, I could be stubborn. I could be weirdly demanding at weird hours. Right. I know that these things are part of, you know, who I am. And so, again, that's Ryan. That's Morgan. That's Natalie. That's Sarah. It's both Natalie's. There's multiple mad Natalie's. There's like 18 Natalie's that are a part of this crew. Um, that's season one with Ruben and Ashley. Um, I, I just want to say that I do appreciate you all uh, for, for doing this. And I'm thankful for everything they're doing behind the scenes to allow me to be decent <laughs> at this. I'm going to say I'm good, but allow me to be decent at this. homie Hillary Crosley Coker is a writer, editor, journalist. She's a multi-hyphenate. She has multi-talents. Multi-talented person. <laughs> Hillary. Hello. How you doing? I'm good. You know, good morning. I mean, the world is trash and everything is terrible, but I'm doing the best that I can. You look good. Thank you. I try to look cute when I'm sad about the fate of the world. <laughs> My mom said, then you'll get compliments and it'll make you feel better. I said, I don't know if that exactly. feels self-centered, but I'm going to try it. I got to share this. So last year, around this time last year, I was in New York City. We hung out for a bit, went to breakfast, walked around Brooklyn a little bit. And you said that my jeans were so tight that it looked like it had given me a yeast infection. Did you not say that? They were very tight. I completely <laughs> claim it. And I'm laughing because that was a joke that we had in college. We'd be like, child, you can't have your pants to tie. You're going to get a yeast infection. Where are you doing? Where are you going? And when I met you, you didn't wear pants that tight. So then when I saw you, I was just surprised. <laughs> I was like, oh, it was like Kendrick with money. And then Kendrick, like section 80 Kendrick. And I was like, oh, my God, like he's this nigga. <laughs> we tie pants in the game now. That's why we can't breathe. That's how you know you're popular. <laughs> You barely walk down the street, go start a fire. Even the other hipsters were like, God damn. It was a, it was a time. <laughs> it was a time. <laughs> but I love you, though. Anyway, we're here to talk about you. We're here to talk about you and your career, right? So, Hillary, mm. you have written, you know, numerous different places. You've worked for a bunch of different publications. Can you name just some of the ones that you've worked for or currently do? Ah, Yes. I am a veteran, because we just had Veterans Day. I'm a veteran of the Source magazine, OG days. Benzino and Dave Mays and Kim Osorio were my first bosses. That was my first real job. I used to play somehow, some way when Benzino was coming into the office to let everybody else know that it was coming down on us and we had to prepare. It was like a war cry and everybody would peek out their offices, like gird your loins. Really? There was like an intentional... Oh, yeah. I was Kim's assistant. So I was the first person to get the call to be like, oh, here comes this guy. And so everybody was like, thank you, Hillary. 
so why somehow some way why why not like a song about like because we gotta make it up out the hood some way we can't be here forever this can't be our lives forever i would think it would be a song about niggas with no necks like if there's like maybe my neck my back (laughs) maybe you would have played that i don't think that was out yet but that would have been a good (laughs) that would have been a good funny joke or jada kiss we gonna make it wasn't out yet you know i'm an old head (laughs) so i was working with the scraps i was given um, but yeah, that was my first job. And then I went back to MTV News, which became my like abusive boyfriend. I kept going back to that place. I had to eventually promise my mama I would never go back because they just treated us freelancers so poorly. But we did such cool stuff. And then I went to Billboard and I was very buttoned up and had to work with all of the executives and Now I look at all these people popping out with all these claims against them. And I'm very glad that I've always been aggy and nobody tried to do that type of foolishness with me. Because I guess they were like, she going to shame me in public or punch me in the throat, one of the two. And I don't want to be there. I don't know. God bless the ancestors for looking out. And then after that, just, you know, so many places. I went for Rolling Stone and I was at The Root, which is awesome. Got very black. I was at Trace magazine, the original Black Girls Rule. Mm. And then I went to Jezebel because I loved it. I really liked the angry feminism that I was reading, mm-hmm. albeit angry white feminism. And so I thought when they were trying to say things about black women, they just really didn't have the skin in the game. They mm-hmm. needed to have clearly black female writers who could speak about the things that they were trying to cover outside of obviously Dodi, who had been there and who helped me join. And she can't write everything, though. So I remember emailing Jessica Cohen, hey, you know, you need help and she needs help too. She can't be the one woman gang. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty great and I have a wedding to pay for. What's up? Um, And so I ended up joining the team and that was one of the first places that I actually worked that I didn't want to murder people on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Like people weren't acting like they were curing cancer with an article about like Beyonce's bangs, an article I wrote. (laughs) (laughs) Because it was during the, I don't know, she had these super short bangs and everybody was like, Beyonce, you're so beautiful. But like, this is a moment that is not as flattering as it could have been. And I just feel like risky. Don't ever wear this wig again. Um, And so it was fun to be able to just write silly things like that. But it was great to join the little Jezebel Mafia and really have a good time. And that is where you and I met. Yeah, yeah. So we met in person for the first time, 2015, a video you were doing on the new black, right? And invited me up to New York City. We recorded, you know, when you were talking before about how niggas get some money, get some status, and their clothes get smaller. And also niggas forget that they niggas too sometimes too. And so the new black thing was a part of that where this this is back in like 2015 where it's like, you know what, we've evolved past blackness. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Uh- it wasn't quite the Jay-Z evolved past kneeling. We hadn't gone there yet. No, it was definitely the common said we all just need to like forget about mm-hmm. the past and like hug each other. And then Kanye was doing his little voice affectation when yeah. he was on the Kardashian was, talk that show so that weird. was short-lived for a section. Everything was very vocal fry. And then Raven Simone was like, I'm not black to Oprah. And Oprah was like, don't put me in this. I don't want to be here. And then Pharrell was like, yeah, we're just like, why are we focusing on blackness? And it was like, your name is Pharrell <laughs> from Virginia. <laughs> what? Your mama named that and made that up. Yeah, Pharrell. And For Raven, real. Raven Simone, yeah. y'all niggas is Between niggas. Hyphen Simone, S Y M O N E. I don't. 
Come on, man. Like Pharrell, Pharrell's last name could very easily be Jenkins. Like Pharrell Jenkins. Pharrell Jenkins. Jenkins. Yeah, exactly. And I saw, I watched the documentary where Dave Grohl, the drummer from the Foo Fighters, went back to certain musicians mm-hmm. with their mamas and talked to them. And Pharrell looked like he sat in pew number three <laughs> every Sunday with his mama, with her press and curl. And she's beautiful and she's lovely and she's a regular black woman. Mm-hmm. And I love it because his whole thing is like, I'm an alien. And it was like, nah, baby, you just from Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> It's fine. It's fine. Like, live your best life. Do your thing. All right. So I had my blog, Very Smart Brothers, Panama and I. Yes. And it was just us writing, Um, you know, for the first couple of years. It was just, you know, I'd take a turn for a week, then, the, then it'd be Panama's week, and we'd bounce back like that. And then I ended up getting a grant, the Advancing Black Arts in Pittsburgh grant, which um helped me, you know, I guess, transition VSB from just us to like more of a digital magazine where we had more contributors. We were able to pay for a new layout, new design, et cetera. Shout out to Pittsburgh. Pew, pew. And when I wrote the grant, I gave a shout out to Jezebel. Like I mentioned Jezebel pretty prominently in the grant because it was like, you know what? I never knew this. Yeah. Jezebel, like the the fearlessness, the humor, the, the, the vulgarness, <laughs> right? The levity, all of that. I wanted VSB to be a place that made niggas feel the way I felt when I would read Jezebel. You know what I mean? It's like, oh shit, these these motherfuckers is doing it. They don't give a fuck. They're just writing about whatever. They're going at people. They're funny. They're silly. They're messy. And I wanted VSB to be a space for for us like that. And so again, it, it was in the actual grant that helped transform VSB into something bigger. And so you named all these publications that you worked for, right? Jezebel's gone now. MTV News, I think, is no longer the source. The source. It's no longer. Is what is it a newsletter like now? Like what? What is happening with the source? They doing something. I don't know. <laughs> you know, but it's not the same. It's not no. like it's not the sort of place where it could be like an aspirational. Like if you are a young black, a young any person interested in music, interested in culture, it's like you not like it for the was. source. I want to graduate. When I graduate from college, I want to I want to move to New York City. I want to work for the source. It's not that anymore. That was a time. Right. And so Jezebel and Jezebel's the latest of these spaces that were aspirational spaces for a lot of people like us. Yeah. Right. Um, that no longer exists. And so what do you say to like a a 21 a, a year old you who wants to have your career? right now well i would say that there are other places that are you know taking up the torch that jezebel held from other magazines before them right because we were in the shadow of miss and you know the freelance writers that would want to write something smart for a lot of the um women's magazines and they would squeeze it in the editors who were like yes we're here for the fashion but also i want to write this piece about like you know, actual stuff that women are going through and they would have to fight behind Mm -hmm. the scenes. So shout out to everybody who has been doing this work long before Jezebel, who even made that a a door that we could walk through. Um, And so Mm -hmm. after us, I think The Cut um, has been doing really good stuff. And they were doing good stuff before, but I think, you know, they took um, P's and Q's from Jez and a couple of our writers had gone over there Shout out to Callie, who I love her. She's like a fabulous little <laughs> red-haired, half-twin witch sprite. Like, she's 
<laughs> Callie is hilarious. Um, I'm pretty sure one of my ancestors said something to her while I was in a cab with her, and she just stared at me. And I was like, what is it, Callie? And she was like, nothing. And I was like, you a lie. But we could talk about this, you know, in five years when I've had my spiritual awakening of 2020. Um, and this is Callie's last Boozman, I believe. I might not be pronouncing that properly. Um, okay. But she's wonderful. And she was over at The Cut. Um, she also went to Vice after. Um, and so they were just, they have taken that and are doing a good job of calling bullshit on certain things that I think Jezebel would have done or in writing articles that I know we would have run. Um, but, you know, it's they're owned by other people and it was something very free about working in the Nick Denton, fuck you, I'm a millionaire, so I'll let my people write whatever they want <laughs> kind of vibes. Um, mm -hmm. The Gawker at that time, I mean, maybe obviously like to their detriment to all of our detriment. Mm -hmm. um, but in the beginning, it really was freeing. But it also mm -hmm. reminded me of how to protest because that was always something that we had to deal with as the feminist website, the women-centric website, where people would do like the weirdest sort of uh, online attacks to us. And we would say, mm -hmm. okay, so fix it. And they would say, well, no, you need to... And this was like the the management of Gawker in general, they'd say, oh yeah, we hear that you're like getting rape gifts dropped on all your articles. Well, you're gonna have to like write a post about it and then Nick will see it and then we can like do something about it. I was like, what? Why do we have to do all of that? But that's America, right? Like we have this war now that a lot of people don't want, right? And we're all saying, hey, we don't want this. And then they get up and they say, no, 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 we support whomever. And then we all have to go outside and protest in the cold to say, no, no, for real. We talked about mm -hmm. this, but now I have to go show you. This is my digital post as a walking person with a sign that says, I don't want this. Thanks, Gawker. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and that's a that's a great point you bring up about just um, one, just the ethos of subversion and of protesting and of using your voice, you know, and prioritizing your voice, you know, and I think people might see people at places like that who are like, you know what, they're using their voice, but they're using it in a way where it's actually sacrificing their safety. And it's like, no, you are using your voice in a way to protect yourself because this is what you have. This is this is the most viable part of the thing that you have. And that's going to be the thing that makes people pay attention if they are going to pay attention. Yeah. Right. So it's it's actually the opposite way. And I really believe that in it, that that is my protest. Like a lot of people, yeah. you march, you per you bake, you're volunteering your house to, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> protesters got to eat. So somebody's, you know, it's like at the church, somebody making the dinner in the back for after the let out. Yeah, that's true. Protest baking. Everybody does their part. Yeah. And for me, that was, that is my part. And, you know, I guess one of the, I guess, most tragic parts of like Jezebel not existing really anymore um, and other spaces like that. It's uh, okay. So you're always going to have like the New York times. You're always going to have also like the New York or the Atlantic, like those places are going to exist. All right. Long money funding right. them. But, but like the in-between spaces, the blogs, you know what I mean? Where you had like more voicey uh, content and people who were, might've been it. Not, I'm not going to say you had people who were more radical, but you had people who had the freedom to be more radical and to speak, you know, truth to power in a way that, you know, 
that might not always happen at a larger publication. And so now you don't have those spaces or you have less of those spaces existing. And now you just have less of an opportunity for that type of content or for that type of protest, right? And so if you're getting all of your information from like mainstream publications and from newspapers and from the Washington Post and the, and the New York Times or whatever, which is great, but you're, but you're not getting a complete picture because you're not getting the grays, the grays. You're not getting the mess. Yeah. I think Nick described Gawker as the conversation behind the conversation mm-hmm. or the conversation behind the article, like what the reporters were actually talking about. I remember when, and this is not at all going to be a big long thing of like Nick Denton was great. Cause he definitely got into a fight with a man. He should not have pushed out of a closet. And that's why we are all here with Peter Thiel at revealing himself to be Darth Vader while hiding behind Hulk Hogan and that whole thing. Look it up if you're wondering why I'm talking about this. But it was definitely a loss during the Trump years because Gawker would have had a field day because it was such a cluster train wreck explosion bomb happening, melt nuclear meltdown every day. Can you imagine the stories that Gawker would have run <laughs> during the Trump during the Trump years, it would have been glorious. Like all of the ways that people were sort of nervous about calling things out. And I think that was really the beginning of, you know, our march to wherever we are headed now, which seems a lot like fascism. Um, And, you know, there's ways for that to be silly and fun and also call out the red flags that are flying Mm -hmm. proudly and loudly um, in a place where, you know, the only person you have to report back to really for permission is Nick, who would be like, burn it all down. His whole wave was like, no, get him. Yeah. Like I'm rich and I am, but I don't think of myself in rich terms in this way because I'm an open book (laughs) because my wealth allows me to be an open book. Right. But um, I don't necessarily think of it in that way. And everyone should be an open book and <laughs> no one should have secrets and no one should be in the closet and nobody should have everything. Everything should be exposed. And so in that way, I really missed the things that that Jezebel would have been able to do um, in those times and Gawker would have been able to do in Deadspin. Because I think that was another one of our talks too, where Matt Barnes was like harassing, was it his ex-wife? And he like drove yeah, Gloria. Yeah. all day and all night because she went on a date with like Derek Fisher. Was it Derek Fisher? Yeah. And yeah, I, it was Derek Fisher. Right. Yeah. And I think Deadspin had written about it. And we were like, yeah, because this is so hilarious that this man is so controlling and giving you all kinds of domestic violence red flags that you want to drive someplace to ask a woman about a date when you really could have had a phone call and also it's none of your business like what this yeah. is not hilarious arrest him immediately like, yeah, get her yeah i remember protection. yeah that story it was like everyone on online well not everyone but it seemed like the prevailing commentary about is like oh this is so funny matt barnes matt barnes is a wild dude y'all matt barnes um, you don't fuck with like but this is and i think it might have been albert Beneco at deadspin who wrote like a piece and it was the first piece i've seen in a sports context that was like yo this is fucked up what the fuck is happening here and now uh, now deadspin had that same ethos that jezebel did a lot of the deadspin people are at the factor now which right? i love the, support the defector i love yeah. dead <laughs> in the root you know and while i was at the root we did you know there will be could do this to speak truth to power 
you know, and our I was there during the Trump years, right? I started at the root in uh, 2017, and so you know, so much of my so much of our content was like directed at like just not just at him, but at just the the circumstance that created him. You know what I mean? And making fun of him and talking shit about him and talking shit about the people who elected him or or, or whatever. Um, but again, the root also is another space that doesn't exist in the same way. It still exists, but it's not the same as it was as it was five, six years ago. You know, and I don't know. I just, you know, you look at this, right? And then you look at like the book banning. We had Jackie Woodson on uh, for the first half of this show. And we talked about just the book banning uh, that's going on, not just in the South, but in everywhere in the country. I mean, there's a school district, again, that's 10 minutes from where I live, where this shit is happening, where there's like a controversy, like, again, Western Pennsylvania, Allegheny County, Pittsburgh, right? And so this shit is pervasive. Um, And these things are connected, like the book banning and the hysteria about, you know, not allowing like books from people of color or books from queer people into libraries, into classrooms. I feel like it is the same thing as what's happening with these in-between spaces that are more radical, that are more voicey, that are less mainstream. Well, see, I feel like the book banning is one thing. And then there's the angel investing of media. Like people are getting Mm -hmm. money in financial influxes from people who expect a return on investment as if it was an app. Mm -hmm. But you're not going to get that kind of return on investment. Like we're now we're looking at the crumbling of vice, right? Which I feel like is constantly going out of business. They're constantly falling apart. And I I always am wondering, (laughs) okay, so when do you actually cut off the lights and close the door? Like at what point is it a wrap? Like it's constantly a wrap, but it's never a wrap like when is what's going on over there but that is a good example of taking a lot of investor money and then the investors think that they're going to get it immediately but that's not how news media works right and you're probably never going to get this balloon sum that you invested because you're dealing in news and so sometimes you're going to be high sometimes you're going to be low sometimes you're going to have a lot of viewership because you're speaking exactly what the people want to hear sometimes you hit Mm -hmm. you know that viral moment and sometimes you don't sometimes you're just over here doing good work Mm -hmm. which is not enough i guess to get back all of the money that people have invested and then you go belly up or not because it's like it's like vice and medium are always falling apart but never actually fall apart (laughs) it's very Mm -hmm. strange but um, it's that kind of thing. And, you know, ironically, one of the Gawker alum, Cord Jefferson, wrote that into the succession script where I don't watch the rich white people television show. And I, I should because everyone tells me it's very good. But I watched the first episode and I was like, wow, these people are fucking awful. <sighs> the first episode is, is hard. It's, 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 it's like, yo, why would, why would I spend time the worst. with these people? <laughs> yeah, they, it, but it gets it. If you could get past those that first episode, particularly, it's it's worth it. But yeah, that first episode is, is tough. Yeah, that's what everybody keeps saying. It's like, I hope dad dies. Is he going to die? Well, if he dies, what are we going to do? Anyway, the whole point is they talk about uh, not in the first episode, but I think Kendall comes in and he fires the fake gawker that they've written into the show because his dad told him to. And he was like, yeah, we're going to keep the cooking, the what one site and the weed site and everybody else got to go home. Because those are the ones that are getting the most clicks. Sorry, bye. And that's kind of where 
the internet is has gone and it's it's more of a question of okay you know the sprite commercial because i'm an elder what's my vote of what's what's my motivation where is this gonna go after i write it will it be here and googleable or is this entire website that we've all done all these things gonna disappear into the ether like the lebron you know stuff that goes in the air and then it what are we where what is this for I mean, I know for me, it's my protest and I do my best to try to download everything that I write that I really care about so that I can have access to it even after the website inevitably dies or gets absorbed into whomever else mm-hmm. is going to buy it and turn it into some acronym we can't really use. But mm-hmm. hello, Max. <laughs> what? It's just HBO. No, it's not. It's something else now. And that's what I mean. Like it's constantly evolving, constantly changing. And so it's just really frustrating. But I mean, we've watched it on television. That's kind of where it is. It doesn't really seem to change, to your point, outside of legacy brands that have long money. Mm-hmm. Got a little dark at the end. Sorry. <laughs> that's, that's fine. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm not trying to be super dark. I'm just saying. And, and, and again, I'm not, I, I don't want, you, I'm not saying that it, that you have to bring light. I'm just saying, I'm acknowledging that shit is dark. Shit is dark, to your point. But also, there are different ways that people are coming forth. And what's to say that things aren't being burnt down so that they can regrow in another way? Like, to the James Baldwin quote where he's like, I I cannot give these babies no hope. Like, I have to have hope. As a Black person Mm -hmm. in America, I have to have hope that things can change, things can get better, things will eventually get to where they're supposed to be and justice will come. If I don't, I'm going to die. You know, I don't want to die. I want to live. I have two kids. I got to live. I don't have a choice. Who's going to take care of these babies? Uh, But in all seriousness, I I do think that there'll just be another way, right? Because Jezebel was born out of a lot of women's Mm -hmm. magazines and people being tired of looking at extremely airbrushed versions of themselves and, you know, articles telling them how to be skinny and Mm -hmm. how to like not eat at this time and how to exercise within an inch of their life and all of these ways. In addition to nice things, right? Like cute makeup and fun clothes and like Mm -hmm. pithy ways to have a party and all of those things that are nice things to to think about. But people like me wanted to know some other stuff too. Um, And so I'm glad that I got to work at a place where I could write an entire article in defense of television peen. I think it was really just like, you know, watching... Naked dicks swing around on television on stars. I was like, this is great. I love that I'm here. And the art department is like, oh, no, I'm super pumped about that. I'm going to make a pickle and then we'll just put it on a TV. And I was like, this sounds great. (laughs) 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 Or I got to do, you know, that interview with uh, some the the Howard administrator who had been working when Rachel Dolezal was still white. And she was attending Howard and he spoke to me under the condition of anonymity because he didn't want the Dolezal fans to come for him. Like all of these kinds of things <laughs> are the good fun things that I got to do at Jezebel. Oh <laughs> In addition to like yelling at the mayor of Baltimore when during the Freddie Gray thing, when she was yelling at the protesters and saying, y'all need to go sit down. And I was like, ma'am, you need to sit down. A black man just got killed by your police department. And instead of being like, huh. How can I fix my administration, who, which clearly has like given the circumstances to make them feel comfortable for them to be able to do this? And instead, you turn around to the black people who are mad that they're getting brutalized and be like, y'all need to sit down and shut up. Like, these are the things that I got to cover. So it's a blessing. And somebody's going to figure out a new way to do that someplace else. Hillary, again, it was great 
great to have you on always Again, just want to thank Jacqueline Woodson, Hillary Crossley Coker for coming through. Just great conversation, great guests, great people, great topic. Thank you all. Uh, could have been anywhere else in the world, but you chose to be here with us, Stuck With Damon Young. Also, Stuck With Damon Young is available wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're on the Spotify app, please take advantage of interactive questions and answers and polling and all the fun stuff that's over there. So again, go ahead over there, knock yourself out. Also, if you have any questions about anything whatsoever, hit me up. Dear Damon, Acroca.com. Lastly, uh, we will be dark uh, next week because of Thanksgiving, which means we will be back two weeks um, from today. Just want to give everyone a heads up about that. So again, come back in two weeks, not next week. And we'll see you all when we get back. All right. Stuck with Damon Young is hosted by me, Damon Young. From Crooked Media, Our executive producers are Kendra James and Madeline Herringer. Our producers are Ryan Wallerson and Morgan Moody. Mixing and mastering by Sarah Gibble-Laska and the folks at Chapter 4. Theme music and score by Taka Yasuzawa. And special thanks to Charlotte Landis. And from Spotify, our executive producers are Lauren Silverman, Neil Drumming, and Matt Schiltz. Special thanks to Leslie Guam and Crystal Hall Stressler.